At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A Friday fade, stocks slumping into the weekend after a rough week. Next up, a Fed meeting and more mega cap results. Will the pain trade roll on or is a November rebound in the cards? We'll debate that. Plus, unhealthy returns. Shares of Sanofi crushed after an earnings miss and a profit warning. The rest of the sector hit hard today, too. Will pharma continue to be a tough pill to swallow? We'll ask the traders. And later, battle of the generations, boomers versus millennials. Why one Wall Street bank says there's a clear winner here. Will it be OK Boomer or Oh Yay Boomer? I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. <laughs> Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Carter Worth, and Steve Grasso. We start off with a rough end to a very volatile week. The Dow Industrial is plunging 366 points to mark its lowest close since March. The midday sell-off coming as Israel increased its air attacks in Gaza and expanded the activity of the ground forces there. The Nasdaq, meantime, did manage to hold on to a gain for the day, helped by post-earnings pops in Amazon and Intel. Still, all three indices were well in the red for the week. The action coming as we head into another big week for markets, headlined by a Fed decision on Wednesday, Apple earnings a day later. So will all this uncertainty looming over the markets, what should the roadmap be for the week ahead? Tim, what do you think? Well, the uncertainty looming over the markets has been the roadmap of the past week and of the past two weeks. And the question is, to what extent, as we go into a really great seasonal time, have you priced a lot of risk in? The VIX is telling you some of that. Carter's probably got some views in that area, too. And and, and I think we've also, from an earnings perspective, we, we've spent some time evaluating where numbers that were you know seemingly not bad on a relative basis to expectations really weren't that great if you, if you considered the cycle. I, I think it was a week where, uh, think of some of the data we had, both in terms of GDP, in terms of some of the, 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 the jobless numbers, and, and in other words, a lot of strength um, and, and suddenly kind of in your face, uh, juxtaposed against a lot of these risks. And, and that's where I think it's actually kind of an interesting time. Equities recognize that third quarter might be as good as it got in terms of the economy and in terms of jobs. And I think we priced a lot of that. And it was another week where rates went higher. Um, the good news is that I think we've seen some bottoming in things like staples, some bottoming, and Karen's talked about this too, some bottoming in things like, like utilities. Um, I think you still are going to continue to see some strength. And, and on some level as an investor, I get kind of excited. We're going to talk about some healthcare, some pharma that's getting beat up. And, and I think that creates great opportunities here. So I realize there's a lot of fear out there. Um, the last two weeks have been all about fear. We've got what's going on geopolitically, the, the horrors of the Middle East. It's no wonder um, equities have traded the way they have. And, and yes, Apple's going to move the markets. There's no question. Yeah. Karen, Apple or the Fed? Which one are you most uh, excited about at this point? Excited. Well, I'm not so bullish on Apple. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think the Fed just has to pause. And I don't even know if the rhetoric will be quite as hawkish, maybe. I mean, some of this data that Tim just talked about was pretty, was fairly hot, right? So that isn't great. But, I, you know, I'm always, always long. And so this, a week like this is just, you know, terrible. 
But it's uh, it's also interesting to me. I'd rather be look. I didn't self. I did just self it's, rather. It's okay. That's for you. Okay. <laughs> she gets away with it because she's she's always so well behaved yeah, here. I try. The, the ladies typically. Um, so I I mean I like when things are just kind of you know the VIX is going much higher. Things are kind of gapping down. Um, it's painful, but I think it creates opportunities. And so I'm going to be looking to buy things next week. Not sell. Or is this all a trap, Carter? Yes, yes. I Ooh. think there's, there's still more risk. I mean, here's the thing. The setup for this condition we have now um, is something that's seen so many times in market. It's bifurcation, where you have great extended winners while everything else is not working. And the thought often is that bifurcation is resolved because the winners are telling the truth. Home builders are right, and Apple is right, and the losers will come to life. But bifurcation has never been resolved that way, and yet again, here's how it gets resolved. The weak get even weaker, which is what's happening. Russell 2000 making new lows, and, the and all the extended have all succumbed, meaning Apple rolled over, home builders rolled over. So the bifurcation, which was the setup for this three-month sell-off, is now in the process of being resolved, but I don't think it is finished. Is that how you see it, Grasso? Do you think that everything comes down, it converges to the downside at this point? Yeah, so, so if you look at rates, everyone was concerned with the 10-year popping uh, to 5%. That's backed off. I, I think uh, to Karen's point, I believe Karen said the Fed has to stop. They, they can't raise rates. I believe that. I think that's bullish for the market. Tim touched on geopolitical. Geopolitical, to me, is probably the biggest... Uh, I was going to say outlier, but the biggest uh, threat to the markets moving higher, you see corporate spend pull back. The consumer hasn't pulled back. So if you look at the consumer, so the bears probably got Christmas early this year, Melissa. But the, the, the argument that the bears have is that the consumer is weak. Then the, the, the inflation data comes out hot. So the consumer still is spending. So you can't have it both ways. I think inflation is coming down and the consumer is spending money. That's probably a sweet spot for the economy. But we had the U.S. bomb Syria last night. So not only is there a ground invasion. So I think this has the potential to escalate further and people I guess. pull back. So, God. Well, I was going to say, Steve, I think ultimately the question is, as we weigh, you, you, you framed it. You know, we, we weigh what's going on geopolitically with what we've had with the Fed. The Fed's on hold. I agree. Um, and I also look at kind of the move we've seen in things like gold um, and things that are that are they're telling you that the market is really unnerved. And, and I guess, you know, either the, the question back to, to you is or to the group is ultimately where are we in terms of in terms of some of. Uh, some of the risk factors that tell us with a VIX at 22 and gold now over 2000 and, and, and the BOJ looming as maybe the biggest risk in terms of rates. Th these are the things that I, I think are are telling us that the market's not ready to work this through. And, and to be clear, I feel like the last two weeks, you know, you, I come out of this week feeling like markets, um, Carter's used the term broken. I'll, I won't use a charts term. I feel like marks are, are, are really searching here. And, and I think um, I think all of these and things are And you need 100 handles. You, pre you, you just to put a button, uh, just to put a bow on it, you, you need 100 handles lower. Probably that big fat round number of 4,000 in the S&P probably gets people excited. Uh, where do rates go in the meantime? We had rates I mean, back off. And well, that's it. Rates closed on the low for the week. Yeah. Right. So it, the, the real the sort of sinister outcome perspectively is that you start actually getting lower stocks and lower, and lower rates. yields. And yeah. and and. What's happened is the peak was the 27th of July, and here we are the 27th of October. It's exactly three months. The S&P down 10.5%. That's garden variety. 
I mean, what is so bad? You'd think that something had, that world had ended. There's so much prospectively more to go. With, with the dropping and gapping you see in big names, I mean, like Ford. Yeah, and, that's, and, I mean, that's, that's big kind of pr- moves in the big, last few days. Big moves, and, and Whirlpool, and we've seen it last week in, in, in uh, what is not Moody's, it was the, one of the uh, credit agencies. It was um, TransUnion, dropping, uh-huh. right? Uh, and this kind of thing. That kind of price action, it's just if you were a tape reader, that kind of dropping and gapping doesn't happen when it's, oh, we're near the bottom. That's when it's starting to get panicky, and the panic is likely to get worse, I think. I just well, One other thing we got to look at on the calendar is the quarterly, quarterly funding announcement, right, on Monday, and then how are they going to do it? What's going to be the cadence of the debt they issue? I, that, I mean, that sort of sparked that, this last big rally down. We'll see if uh, there's more bad news. That, to me, is more important than what the Fed says. Or if that's just simply an offset to the bid for bonds that we're seeing because of the bid for safe havens in general, given the, you know, but, what's happening uh-huh. in the Middle East at this point. But this bid for the flight to quality would be short term, right? Yeah. Not, if you don't right. want to take duration risk, you just want to have quality short. And they're paying you five, two, three, whatever it is. Th- right that's now. the only other thing I'll say. In terms of the pain that's out there, um, there's been no place to hide. A, a lot of people, and I think because rates historically, uh, at least in, in the last 15 years, for a lot of folks, especially in the advisory community, uh, anytime you saw rates move higher, it was an opportunity to get investors into um, some higher yield environments. There were alternatives, yield incomes. I, I think uh, the, the, the destruction that there's been in moving people out the duration curve um, has, has been incredible, especially even in relatively conservative parts of both the Treasury curve, and, and you look at triple a corporates and munis and whatnot. I just think that's what has the investor community so unnerved. A lot of people also kind of relatively new to at least making fixed income allocations. And this hasn't been an easy time to do that. Turning now to today's PCE data and what to expect from next week's Fed meeting, the conference board's chief economist, Dana Peterson, joins us here on set. Dana, welcome to the show. Great to see you. Thanks. So are you expecting a pause? What sort of commentary do you think we'll hear from from, uh, Fed Chair Powell afterwards? We are expecting a pause next week. Indeed, Fed Chair Powell and a number of other governors and presidents have indicated that they've seen enough in terms of slower inflation. And they're also concerned about the run-up in bond yields and how that's, well, intensified financial conditions. So are you expecting that this to be a pause? And in other words, there could be another uh, hike in the the offing in the coming, or that this is probably the pause that ends this, this cycle? Well, there could be very well be another hike. Certainly, we're looking at December. And when, if we continue to see data come in as strong as it has been, we saw third quarter GDP come in very strong. What's the tracking for the fourth quarter? But also inflation and labor markets. We're going to get two more inflation reports and labor markets next week. If those are still very strong, the Fed might consider another hike. So a lot of times we see, you know, they might uh, have, let's say they pause. Do you think the rhetoric will be hawkish or dovish? What do you think they're going to say? I think the rhetoric has to be hawkish because the moment they go even a a little bit dovish, you'll see uh, mortgage rates come off, housing market come roaring back, uh, financial conditions loosening, and markets really expecting that rate cuts will be right around the corner. So the Fed needs to keep the heat on. Dana, first of all, thanks for joining us. Do you think that the Fed is concerned about the, the, the move the aggressive move in the long end of, of, of the bond market? Because, again, by any measure, um, this backup in rates has been something that has had technical components to it. There's maybe even some, some truly some fundamental dynamics. There's some inflationary dynamics. But, but the, the Fed, as, as we all talk about, orderly moves in the bond market are fine, disorderly, you know, and how do you feel about this move? How do they feel about this move? But I'd love to hear your view, too. 
Well, I think they may be a little bit disturbed by it, just given the fact that it's happened so quickly. But I think it's also uh, fundamental. Certainly, we are seeing some cracks in the facade of the labor market. Consumers are becoming more indebted. They're falling behind in their credit card payments. And certainly the banking sector, I don't think it's out of the woods in terms of future risks, especially with regards to consu- uh, well, consumers as well as CRE. So with all of that, I think um, markets are expecting, yes, the Fed means higher for longer. But I think that realization just came way too quickly and certainly was disruptive for markets. When do you think the consumer cracks? When? Well, we, have, we still have a recession call for the first half of next year. And that's really when we're going to see negative consumer spending, probably zero payroll gains, and even businesses pulling back, not only on investment, but maybe letting a few people go. The key thing is that many businesses think that this is going to be a short and shallow recession, so they're not really letting people go. But you really do need the labor market to soften in order for this to really work. So is there a rate you're thinking that we're going to hit? In terms of the unemployment yes. rate, yes, uh, we're thinking 4.2 percent. That's that's notably higher than three and a half percent, and it's roughly 700,000 job losses. Wow, um, what has surprised you about the trajectory of the economy this year? Because I feel like everybody has gotten it wrong, and I'm just w- wondering when you look back on it, what you get wrong. So, what is sort of the the unknown that you're thinking? That's the asterisk in my forecast. Well, certainly we did get, (laughs) we, uh, I think, underestimated the power of consumer spending. Consumers still had quite a bit of excess savings, and consumers weren't shy about pulling out their credit cards. So we still had a lot of spending. But I think some of that's going to cool off. And again, you have student loan debt coming online that's going to affect consumers who are 35 and 50. Those are your peak spending years. And certainly, uh, we're starting to see many consumers, especially at the lower end of the income spectrum, complain, still complain about inflation, but also higher interest rates. Dana, thanks so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Thank you. Dana Peterson. Um, Steve Grasso, what do you think? I mean, if the consumer starts cracking early next year, what does the stock market do? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's obvious that the, if the consumer cracks, that that's the linchpin that's holding this market together. But if you think the the problem that we're having with the market is the monetary policy and fiscal policy are butting heads right now. We're in election year cycle. What's going to happen? The the administration can't let the consumer fall apart. So there's got to be something thrown at the consumer, which means more spending, higher inflation. So QT is the biggest problem that, that, that I see that no matter if the, it doesn't matter if, if, the, if the Fed stops raising rates right now, QT is really tightening the market behind the scenes in a much more uh, active way. And, and, and they say it's passive. It's not passive. So if the consumer cracks, the market cracks. If unemployment spikes, the market goes lower. Is this what we're factoring in already, though? Well, I don't know. I was going to ask Steve about about QT. I mean, do you are you saying that as if you think they're going to stop QT? And the GDP no. number was really good, so it's not it's not like uh, they've put a noose around the economy's neck yet. Yeah, the consumer in the GDP number, consumer was hot, and and corporate spend, business spend was not. And QT, they're going to keep that on uh, their foot on the gas until 2025, at the very least. If you remember what the Fed's balance sheet pre-pandemic, it was about $4 trillion, Karen. It, it worked its way up to $9 trillion. Now we're at about $8.2. They want to see that crack, so they can't stop QT. And, and that, if you look at the 10-year, I've said this before, the 10-year spiked by 100 bips, 
as soon as QT doubled up on their rate, on their monthly rate. So QT is tightening more than anything else. They're going to continue that. And to Melissa's original question, to Dana's point, if the consumer cracks, which none of us have seen yet, and I don't think they're going to crack, but if they do, the market falls. Carter, do you think um, if you take a look at, you know, retail charts, consumer discretionary charts, that we've we're going to see a bottom before that consumer cracks sometime in the first half? So, so if you look at the XRT, right, uh-huh. which is a beautiful index, it's equal weight, and it's about 130 stocks, and it's got everything from Walmart to Amazon to things like Gap that are very small on Foot Locker. It is making 52-week lows as we speak, right? It, is, um, it was a huge outperformer relative to the consumer discretionary sector during COVID, after the lows, and it's been a massive underperformer. This is what a classic breakdown setup is. We've just seen the breakdown in Ford. We've seen the breakdown in Whirlpool. This whole index ultimately is likely to break down. Coming up, pharma flop. Sanofi shares sinking after the company issued a dire profit warning before the bell. We'll dig into the headwinds facing the name in the broader industry next. Plus, Jamie's cashing out. Well, just a little bit. Uh, J.P. Morgan shares dropping more than 3% after the CEO dumped a million shares in the market, or plans to next year, we should say. Why that could be an ominous sign for the financials. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. A major buzzkill for Sanofi, the French pharma company, dropping nearly 20% after warning that heightened research and development spending is expected to weigh down profits next year. Fellow pharma stock AbbVie also getting hit. Today it announced a $2.1 billion charge related to government price negotiations for its cancer drug, Imbruvia. Uh, Karen, you flagged AbbVie. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, these are big moves, though, for, for pharma. Big giant pharma. is north of the hundred billion dollar company. I mean, these are, these are not small companies. These right. are massive moves. Yeah, and Avi had their um, Botox and Juvederm miss, which is a big mm-hmm. revenue miss. And I got to imagine the margins there are very good. So even though it wasn't giant line item, but also a horrible day, a horrible day to own many stocks, but particularly the the kind of emergency room of of 
big cap pharma or now smaller cap pharma was terrible across the board. Yeah. yeah. And it's been so weak all along. Bears mm -hmm. been making 52-week lows, and so is Bristol-Myers. Bristol-Myers. So yep. is yep. Pfizer, and J&J's at 52 weeks. I mean, it's really a bifurcated there. It's Lilly and a few others, and then the rest of it's just like the market. Yeah, I, I think it's setting up for great opportunities, but I, I have exposure to, to Merck. I have exposure to Pfizer. I have some exposure to AbbVie. Um, and and I, I think, you know, in, in BMY's case, this is a company that continues to disappoint. This has been this stock's been going down uh, and they gave guidance that said they're going to need an extra year to hit a lot of their their pipeline targets. So this is what we're hearing from these companies. There's the, certainly an investor community that believes these companies have to spend more. Um, those companies that have had exclusives on pipelines are the ones that are being exposed here because they're now coming due. Um, the Sanofi move, a, a lot of strategic updates. They've got a big investor day coming up. I think this sets up for an opportunity, but. You don't, I don't think you touch a name like this yeah. this quickly after this kind of a move today. The AbbVie move also underscores uh, the notion of the, the unknown associated with Medicare Part D and the impact on, on, on revenues from these drugs that are identified on this list, Grasso. We're coming up into an election year. You've got to wonder if there's going to be a lot of just noise around the sector as well. Yeah, that, those are, that's always the poster child for election years, to your point. And when we had the pandemic, it was all of the vaccine-related drugs that spiked higher. Pandemic ended, they all spiked lower. GLP-1 inhibitors, and that's still a very expensive drug. There's not going to be a lot of circulation for that class of drugs, but I still think you have to go with that theme because that's sucking up all the oxygen in the room. And for all of us to try to see how we can navigate Medicare or Medicaid and, and the political arm of it, too complex. Stick with the ones that have worked, but an Eli Lilly has already worked. I would go with an Amgen, whose GLP-1 inhibitor hasn't really had a tailwind yet. I would stick with that one. All right, there's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Okay, Boomer, Bank of America says youth is overrated. We'll dive into a generational pairs trade that could put the baby boom back in your portfolio. Plus, the diamond dump. J.P. Morgan's CEO is doing something he's never done, waving goodbye to a million shares of the company. How much should we read into the sale? We'll get some answers next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of J.P. Morgan taking a hit today. CEO Jamie Dimon planning to sell 1 million shares of the bank's stock starting next year, according to a regulatory filing. It'll be his first sale since becoming J.P. Morgan's head honcho in 2005. The stock is up nearly 250% since then. But the news comes just days after Dimon's guarded comments on the global economy. At the Future Investment Initiative this week, he said central banks were 100% dead wrong 18 months ago and that he would be quite cautious going into next year. So there's a couple things at work here. He's been a good buyer of the stock in the past, so is he also a good seller, even if it's for many different reasons, planning purposes, estate planning, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and or is he planning to leave the bank, Karen? So um, he is not planning to leave the bank. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, but to think about, you know, I would much rather he not be selling stock. However, you know, there's a lot of reasons people sell stock, right? Diversification, and that, that would be the main one here. Um, but also, you know, he could have begun selling stock already right. and just filed a Form 4, like most people do. I think him saying, you know, in 2024, this is my plan. I'm going to do this. He's probably he's going to do it regardless of price, just in a, you know, 10B5 or whatever it's called. Um, so I don't love to see it. I mean, the stock is down five bucks today. I hate that. Although the market for bank stocks also terrible today. So I think it was, you know, on the worst side, but not the worst. So um, I think that um, I wouldn't read that much into it. One more thing to note, though. He still has a fortune in stock, plus he has uh, PSU's performance stock units that could make him nearly whole to this sale. Right. So he has a ton of money on the table. Well, a couple of things. I mean, obviously, it's been the place that everyone has been hiding. If you look at the relative performance of J.P. Morgan to the BKX, it was making all-time relative highs. It's going back to 1992, just in the past two weeks. But two, is it, and this is your world of fundamentals, not mine, but is it cheap at 1.3 times book when every other bank is trading It's not 1.3 times book. It's more than that. That's, oh. t that's not tangible. No, not tangible. I'm just and talking about book, right? right? Okay. But, I mean, at 135 versus every other bank below one, if you look at its average price to book over the last 20 years, it's more like 115, 112. It's higher than maybe, maybe it still belongs at a lower level. I just, here's the question. Do you buy in? <laughs> when a stock is just dropped and gapped if you didn't know the news. Forget the news. Forget the news on Santa Fe. Forget the news on J.P. Morgan. The stock dropped and gapped. No one could say yes, but we know it was because there was news that Jamie Diamond sold. But if you just look at the chart, mm -hmm. good technique is never to buy when a stock drops and gaps. Did, did you just refer to them as fundament, fundamentals? Fundamentals. That's what I thought I heard. The chart guy talking about what we did. No, okay. no, no. And he's, he, like, Car Carter's right to point out that sometimes, you know, uh, Technicals tell a story that, that doesn't matter how you could have crafted the fundamental story. Uh, the, 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 the relative outperformance of J.P. Morgan, I think, is critical, and I think it's important, and I think it is a case of fundamentals. I think it's, it, it's not only a balance sheet dynamic, it's, it's, it's uh, the businesses that they're in and the strength that they have and the pricing power that they have, and frankly, they haven't had to price quite as aggressively for deposits. They don't need to. Um, it, it's, it's a really interesting time because I think banks uh, are, are not an exciting place to be. This is a day, by the way, where it's a very small bank doesn't mean much at all in terms of size, but you have this Republic First Bank um, that we now in the last couple of days have learned it's just another bank that's getting bailed out. And there is some sense that there's another wave of these to come. Um, so, so is J.P. Morgan worth owning at this time? The one thing that's been very interesting about what banks have been able to do, and even with SVB, they're paying normalized dividends again. They are actually able to, to give back to investors via buybacks and, and dividends. And J.P. Morgan probably will continue to have that strength. But um, Jamie Dimon, by the way, when, you know, when he, it was personally career-wise when he moved out from under Sandy Weil and Citibank, and it was probably a very painful time. Look at the relative outperformance of J.P. Morgan to Citibank, especially since that time. And Citibank pre-crisis, it's, it's kind of a joke where Citibank trades. Coming up, OK Boomer, Bank of America is putting a generational hair straight on. The names behind the Boomer boom and why it might be time to fade the young folks. That's next, plus negative energy. Chevron and Exxon both uh, in delivering Disappointing earnings before the bell. Our next guest will try to make sense of what he calls a very strange mismatch in the energy market. Fast Money's back right after this. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing out a rough week. The Dow tumbling nearly 400 points. Its worst day since March as the S&P enters correction territory, notching its worst week since February. The Nasdaq managing a gain of four-tenths of a percent, but all three indices on pace to close out the month in the red. Shares of Charter Communications falling nearly 10 percent after delivering results this morning. The cable giant reporting a deceleration in new broadband subscribers, losing more than 300,000 video customers pinning the loss on the Disney dispute in early September. And speaking of Disney, the media giant postponing some movie releases, like a live-action remake of Snow White, citing the impact of the ongoing actor strike. And despite the tentative auto workers deal, Ford shares sliding more than 12% after an earnings miss. The automaker saying EV demand is falling short of expectations. Let's stick with the transports here. UPS continuing its slide after reporting earnings yesterday. The stock now at lows, last seen in July of 2020. It's been underperforming its delivery peer FedEx in a big way this year, down over 20%, while FedEx has gained more than 30%. The move got us thinking we should play a little Friday edition of Would You Rather? Love it. Because why not? It is Friday. It's our favorite game, as well as America's. Um, Tim, you actually flagged UPS versus FedEx. I just think some of these pairs, first of all, pairs trades are really challenging because uh, obviously you can find peers and, and pit them against each other and be wrong on both sides. So be careful. Um, this is a case where uh, we've had a 50 percent of performance of FedEx to UPS. A year ago, it was the exact opposite. Remember, FedEx was a company stumbling and bumbling. Uh, there was a lot of questions about the quality of management that historically had uh, deserved quality. UPS, which historically trades Six, seven turns expensive on a multiple, uh, on a PE multiple to FedEx is, is now trading around 14 and a half, 15 times to FedEx is 11 times. So after a 50% underperformance, I would rather UPS. And I'll just say this overall about this environment. I think it is a stock picker's environment. And, and I do think I'm looking at a, a report by Scott Group from Wolf, whose title is Death by a Thousand Cuts. And then he goes on to say, I've lowered my, my EPS on these guys seven times this year. That's where UPS is. And I think the, I, I think the sentence is awful. All right, let's move on to another would you rather in two related Staples names. Carter taking a look at Coke versus Pepsi, the classic battle here, each down more than 10% on the year. Is there a winner here? Yeah, well, we, we might have a chart here. And so in the pairs business, right, and we have a lot of clients that are dedicated just that everyone is beta neutral, dollar neutral, and what they look at is ratio charts. They don't look at uh, comparative charts. And this ratio chart you see on your screen going back some 30, 40 years is the relative performance of Coke to Pepsi. So Coke is essentially back at all-time lows uh, versus Pepsi. Now, there are two ways to interpret that. You say, yeah, and it's going to get even worse, going to make new lows. Um, or... This is where it bounces because it's so bad it's good. That is my hunch, actually, to be contrarian here and to bet against the bad uh, chart. The bad chart says it gets worse, but the ratio is so bad. Again, back to those very precise lows, my thinking is you play Coke relative to Pepsi. All right. Uh, Steve, what's your call on this one? Uh, I, th- I think you, I would play Coke uh, better than Pepsi. Pepsi focuses on snack food, has much larger diversified base. Coke concentrates on beverage. And if you look at those, the uh, obesity drugs, they're going to curtail, or at least the idea is that they're going to curtail curtail the snacking ability. I'd rather focus on something that's focused on beverages. I think that the GLP inhibitors will probably (coughs) affect Pepsi more than Coke. I go with Coke. Our final would you rather here, Target down nearly 30% this year, while Walmart Walmart has surged 13 plus percent. Karen, what do you think? 
Well, I have Target and Walmart mm -hmm. and Target versus Walmart, which in the last month has done okay. Prior to that, not okay. Um, I just think the, the differential is so high that um, it's just too wide and they have to converge. That hasn't happened so far. I mean, Walmart is a better position we know. The grocery business is a much better place to be right now. Target doesn't have that. And Target's higher, uh, higher margin stuff, not also great right now. But I do think that this is just a pretty wide margin that will converge. There's also a little bit of a, a turnaround hope in Target's mm -hmm. business here. Which I, I, I look, I, I'm long Walmart, uh, much less than I was. Walmart's been so defensive here. It's destroyed Target. We know why. Karen highlighted a couple of reasons. I like Target over Walmart here. No question. We, we looked at this briefly earlier in the week, Dan yeah. and, and, and uh, Tim, you're both making that case. And we might have a relative chart just to look at it because it, it really is how the pairs business works and what you'll see if we have it is that the spread one versus the other with a moving average is at or near uh, sort of record readings and so uh, you're, it's just a mean reversion trade can you catch a bounce uh, independent of one is better or the other cheaper or not and and I think you can all right meantime FTX founder and former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried testifying before the jury in his fraud trial for the first time today our Kate Rooney is live in lower Manhattan with all the headlines here Kate Hey, Melissa. So on the stand today, Sam Bankman-Fried talked about mistakes at FTX. He acknowledged customers were hurt in the collapse of his crypto exchange, and he really tried to shift the blame today. But he said he didn't commit fraud. Bankman-Fried saying that his biggest mistake was not controlling risk. When asked if FTX had a risk management department, SBF, as he's also known, responded, we sure should have. That got some laughs in the courtroom today. When asked about uh, by his attorney, did you defraud anyone? He said, no, I did not. He also said no when asked if he took customer funds. Bankman-Fried has tried to place the blame on other executives who have already pleaded guilty. It's really his word versus theirs at this point. He said he was too busy to run both crypto companies that he owned. He claims he didn't know about some of the issues at his hedge fund. He also said he was too busy to even get a haircut. One of the people he's blaming, his former girlfriend and the CEO of his hedge fund, Caroline Ellison. Their romantic relationship came up today. Bankman Freed said that he didn't have the time or energy for her either. Separately, he said that he did not direct colleagues to make political donations either. As far as the billions spent on venture investments, he said he believed that that money came from Alameda profits. And he thought that was OK because, well, he owned the hedge fund, thought it was profitable. And he said he saw no reason why he couldn't borrow from that firm, guys. Back to you. All right, Kate. Thanks, Kate Rooney. Uh, meantime, we have uh, eight to 10 filings of possible Bitcoin ETFs on the docket over at the SEC, and Bitcoin's not doing too badly these days. Carter, what do you make of this move? That's right. It's come to life, something that's been almost not <laughs> talked about, uh, remarkably out of the news. Uh, my hunch is it works higher, but um, I'd be small. My, my hunch is that Bitcoin should trade for the same reasons that gold does, in addition to the regulatory tailwind that could be massive. Um, and, and I will continue to say that I think more regulation is better for Bitcoin prices in terms of institutional adoption. But again, gold over 2000 today. Gold's made an 11 and percent move. Gold miners are rallying. I mean, this is to me, this is a place you want to be right now. All right. Coming up, Chevron and Exxon results disappoint before the bell. But is this just a harbinger of harder times ahead for big oil? We'll tackle that. And later, how much later much like their skinny jeans and avocado toast is the investing <laughs> in millennials trend over i like avocado avocado toast. no time from no accessible housing to funeral services bank of america is betting big on boomers okay boomers we'll explain why
Welcome back to Fast Money. Big oil slumping today. Chevron dropping almost 7% after reporting an earnings miss. The stock is down six days in a row. That's its longest losing streak since 2021. ExxonMobil shares also feeling the heat, down about 2%. That company's quarterly profit falling from last year's record numbers. The oil giant missed earnings estimates by 10 cents a share, while revenues beat. Meantime, a new headwind for big oil may be straight ahead. Our next guest expects gasoline prices to slump before Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Tom Closa is a global head of energy analysis at the Oil Price Information Service. So, uh, Tom, great to have you with us. Um, but you think oil prices are going higher, even though gas prices are going lower. How unusual is that? Well, it seems like a disconnect. But before the Hamas bombing, we saw gasoline prices lose anywhere from 50 cents east of the Rockies to about a dollar a gallon in value. So we've, we're going to be dropping on retail prices. This weekend, we'll see the average price below $3.50 for the first time since March. And the problem, if you look out for the next four months or so, is that refiners are going to be making too much gasoline. We use about 8% less than we did in the peak years. And last year, the only thing that averted a glut was the fact that we had that winter storm Elliot right around Christmas time. So you don't need to host telethons for the refiners. They're going to be okay. They're making enough money on diesel and jet fuel to pay the bills. But people are going to see cheaper gas. It's going to be a real tailwind for consumers. And I think people look at gasoline prices the same way I look at the Dallas Cowboys. When they win, it annoys me. And when yes. gasoline yes, prices Tom. go yes. high, it annoys a lot of consumers. <laughs> Will it be true for a lot of the other products as well? Will you know jet fuel prices come down? Will heating oil prices come down as well? Uh, I think heating oil and diesel prices could really catch fire. If we have a winter, as opposed to last year where it was really just you know, short days, but temperatures that you'd see more for March or April, then we have a problem because we have very low inventories in Europe and very low inventories in the U.S. But again, that'll pay the bills and that's going to enable people to buy gasoline at cheap prices. This weekend, probably 30,000 sites are going to be selling gasoline for less than $3. And unless you live in California, where, you know, some really terrible things could happen in the first quarter of the year. You're not looking at a real increase higher for quite a while. Tom, love your view on the Cowboys. Love your view on the markets. It's great to have you back. Uh, what, what do you make of the consolidation in the oil and gas sector? And what does this mean about it? Or what is what does this a tell on in terms of gas and oil prices and, and what they're really out there searching for? It's a tell on the fact that they can't really find real productive growth by simply looking at new projects, whether they're big projects for natural gas or for oil. There's no other new Guiana out there. And if you look at Guiana and, you know, the fact that that was pretty much the uh, the deal that got uh, Chevron excited about it, we don't have that. And you know, people will argue about EVs, but you're probably not going to be deploying a lot of capital for a 10 or a 15 year project right now. So I suspect we'll see some more deals in uh, in crude oil. And I think we're going to see some more deals in refining as well. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to name names. If you would like to, Tom, we would welcome them because it's always interesting to us <laughs> here to trade them. Um, but I'm wondering how high you think uh, oil prices will go. Well, I, you know, again, I think there's a different forecast for crude oil right now than there is mm -hmm. for gasoline. Crude oil is like a coiled spring. And we were fortunate in the fact that 
uh, we started to see a lot of money pour into crude oil after the Moss bombing. But it was when refiners are losing, or excuse me, not using about 3 million barrels a day of their capacity because it's down for maintenance. That comes back on in the middle of November, and I suspect we're going to see higher crude oil prices. But don't be seduced. I mean, the one thing I love about fast money is you taught me not to be seduced by some of these valuations in equities. Don't be seduced by the talk about 100 to 150. Let's get to 90 before we talk about that. All right, Tom, thank you. Always <laughs> good to get your take. Tom Closa. All right, uh, Steve Grasso, um, there are a lot of uh, players in the oil space that are said to be, you know, possibly acquirers, acquirees, et cetera. What do you think? I don't like uh, ExxonMobil. I don't like Chevron on that M&A deals. Uh, Tim asked Tom what he thought. I think that was the top in the market there. MPC, Marathon Petroleum, has uh, far and away beat everyone else out on performance. I love the, I love the chart. If there's no one even close, I don't know if they're going to acquire someone. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a huge company, but... I would sniff around on MPC on either side of that equation, and I think you'll be okay whether or not there is any more M&A or not. You have some charts, Carter. Well, I mean, the big issue here is the price action in Chevron and Exxon, right? So we know that in the entire sector that is energy, there's E&P names, right? And there's refining and there's um, oil services. But the big integrateds, and there are three that make up the sub-industry group, Exxon, Chevron, and Oxy, which represent half weight of the entire sector. Uh, they're under real pressure. In fact, they're breaking trend since the COVID low. It's a bull trap. You can see we broke out and now are faltering. I think this says a lot because this has been one area of the market that has been consistently good since the COVID low. And now it, too, is under pressure. Right. Coming up, a bullish on boomers. Bank of America says it is time to bet on that generation. Guy, are you out there? Listen up. No. I know you're watching. We got that playbook next. And here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is chatting exclusively with the CEO of Warehouser. Catch the full interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Okay, Boomer. More like, oh, yay, Boomer. <laughs> Bank of America saying it is time to get long the golden generation and go short on millennials with more cash and less sensitivity to higher interest rates. Analysts say a boomer or boomers are in better financial positions than their younger cohorts and lay out the areas that could benefit. Their playbook includes buying Toll Brothers, Healthcare REIT, Well Tower, American Express and Service Corporation. Yes, that is a funeral and cemetery operator. And to short Revolve, a trending clothing retailer, in case guys watching. Um, Karen, you flagged this one. This is, this is interesting because oftentimes you do pay attention to demographics. This, this is a very sort of interesting case that was laid out. They're saying this is the greatest wealth transfer since 1980. Boomers hold a lot of their net worth in fixed mortgage rates, and this is all helping them you know, stay flush, ready to right. spend. And Beyond the fixed mortgage rates, they have a lot of money in treasuries, mm. right? A lot of savings that are all of a sudden actually earning when they weren't doing that before. I don't know. I like the story. I just thought it was interesting. It makes sense to me um, where you can see some of the, the, the sort of millennial type names like, like a SoFi or something like that. The, the, at the moment, the bloom is off the rose. So I do think the cruise, I think cruises was another one. Did we talk, yeah. did you mention that? That, that wouldn't exactly be for, for me, but um, 
I, I get it. I think it makes sense, and I think there's more to go in this. Yeah, I mean, cemeteries yeah. and, and funeral services <laughs> with the ultimate uh, safety trade, Carter. <laughs> yes, that's, uh, well, that's completely different. That's um, highly uh, non-discretionary. Yes? <laughs> but anyway, um, the XRT, it gets back to this. The, um, the XRT is, is, is so dominated by basically things you don't have to. You don't have to go to Foot Locker, right? And you don't have to go to Ramatters and Gap, and, and it goes on and on. And that, there is a reason that this is at 52-week lows, whereas um, if you look at the S&P 500 hotel hospitality um, sub-industry group, it, it's quite a bit better. And so those relationships are what they are. There is a lot of uh, sort of correlation, but right now uh, the former, the retail-related type indices are much worse. I, I feel that payments were obviously illuminated this week as being a big problem. And I, I, I look at American Express and I recognize they have a different credit quality. Um, I also recognize, though, I think there's still a lot more pain here. They had, they had decent numbers and, and the stock really, I, I think it's a tell. So um, I, I just think that the consumer has been amazingly resilient, as they should have been. It's all we've been talking about this week. And and, and therefore, boomer or not, I, I think some of the millennial stocks, certainly some of the consumer finance names, I think those are going a lot lower. But I, I don't like housing. I don't really like names relative to housing. I do think there are pair trades in there. I do like, you know, RH over Williams-Sonoma, things like that at this point. But um, I, I think I get the concept of the demographics and the position of the boomers. I, I look at the stocks on here, and there's none of them I want to buy. <laughs> How about you, Grasso? Yeah, I, I think I echo what, what Tim's uh, you know, laying down there. American Express, I, I love the stock. I think it's, I, I agree with the premise, but the chart looks a little messy for me. Told, if, if the consumer starts to die off, I don't care where you are on that spectrum, you're going to pull back on spending. Toll Brothers, there's only so much the builders can do to buy down the mortgage rates. So unless mortgage rates crack, you're not going to see any real activity. We've already seen that boom bust there. I'd wait to, to see what that first quarter looks like next, uh, next year, 2024, to see what shape the consumer's in. Did you just say, Grasso, if you die, you can't spend? <laughs> did, no, did I, I say think, that? I think no, if I, the hope, consumer's going to die I didn't off, say you can't no, spend. No, no. Depends what you yes, put in the will. No, I, I, I meant if the consumer dies off, not if they literally die off. But, yeah, it makes sense either way. I, just, I had to ask. <laughs> All right. Sometimes some things are so simple or so complex. All right, up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Steve? Arista Networks, the stock is up 45% year-to-date. It has a pattern of selling off hard, rallying back hard. Just sold off. I'm looking for it to spike higher. Tim? Chevron. Uh, you know, since trading from 180 down to 140, I, I think the fundamentals of the company through this deal with Hess get better. Their dividend payouts, et cetera. Chevron. Karen? Yes. Same final trade as yesterday. Meta. <laughs> I like that earnings release. Carter? Apple, short into earnings. If it's good, I think it'll be give back like Microsoft, and it's bad. It could prospectively be a Tesla. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. Have a great weekend. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries 
series warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 